This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research and Wisdom Tree and ETF Sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a Senior Advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. I'm back from Maine. We had uh, Camp Kotak in rural Maine last week, and uh, we have one of the sort of hosts of uh, the trip. Cumberland Advisors and one of the, the portfolio managers at Cumberland Advisors here on the show to, to sort of debrief from uh, Camp Kotak and uh, talk about the sort of lessons, how Cumberland is positioned. Also in the studio, Andrew Stewart of Exchange Capital Management. Welcome to our Wharton studio, Andy. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to also start off the show with Professor. It's been a, been a few weeks since we chatted live here on the show. Professor, uh, lots going on in the markets. <laughs> Yeah, a little ripple today, shall we say. We've seen these before where the emerging markets, particularly Turkey, uh, which is no small emerging market in a population over 80 million, and uh, uh, really Erdogan and his policies and uh, not willing to tighten as they have to and uh, undergo austerity. Um, yeah, so that's causing a sell-off. It's spilling into the ruble. It's spilling into other, and emerging markets are down about two, two and a half percent today. But, but you know, it's we only S and P's down a half percent. Uh, we're less than one percent from the all-time high. So, uh, and of course, there's been the reaction, as usually happens, a little flutter internationally. There's a run to the treasuries. Uh, the ten years now down to two eighty-seven, um, from nearly three just a. A couple of uh, a couple of days ago, um, you know, we got the CPI today on target. Except the year-over-year CPI did hit um, a ten-year high of um, 2.4%, which um, not not disturbing, but shows that there are there are some price pressures. Uh, even though we had some pretty mild producer prices uh, yesterday. Um, you know, I, I saw a little trend following, uh, VIX dropping down below 10, people piling into NASDAQ, the FANG stocks. A little bit of an interruption today. We're just at the highs. We're at some technical levels that are interesting. And um, there's not a lot of, you know, uh, big economic news with the Fed meeting not being until the end of September uh, that will move the market next three weeks. Um, so I think you're going to see a lot of technical trading, a lot of trend following, um, and uh, a lot of trying to pick apart the uh, political leaves. Yeah, I mean, the, the sort of political trade revocation is definitely one of the big topics that, that happened in Maine last uh, last week. And think about Trump's reactions. A lot of people do, I think, come to thinking that, and, you're, and you have commented that, 
with if the market thought they really weren't going to come to some sort of deal, we wouldn't be as high as we are on the S and P. But you know, you see Trump leaning in where the currency yeah, of Turkey is free falling. We're going to double the aluminum tariffs. Uh, yeah, uh, he's standing firm, and it is all worrisome. I mean, obviously, given the level of the market, I mean, I think the market thinks you know no more than five to ten percent that there's going to be a, a big trade war, but. You know, I think that might that might be a little low. Now I'm keeping my fingers crossed here. Um, uh, you know, might you know Trump with the good economic news that he you know got on GDP might be emboldened to uh, to uh, move further on that. But I you know the stock market does not want him to. So you know uh, we'll see. Now the big the big stuff is 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 going to be China, and I, you know, that's not until September when that's scheduled to go on, although there's a few more tariffs at the end of August. So, you know, we, we don't know if this is going to be like a jury trial where the everything, you know, the jury is seated and the judge comes in and said, okay, we have a settlement. <laughs> um, you know, whether we're going to, you know, it's going to be a game of chicken right up to the very end or not, I, I absolutely do not know. Um, but, uh, you know, that's I definitely think it's a, a serious wild card that could affect um, the markets. Uh, any other uh, – Andy, do you want to jump in with any questions or any comments here with the professor? Yeah, I'm curious what you think about that game of chicken happening at almost the same time that the Fed meeting happens, as you mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> a bunch of unknowns all kind of coming to fruition at yeah, the same time. Yeah, I, I think uh, – and – and obviously, if if the trade war breaks out, they're not going to move in September. I mean, as if trade war breaks out, you're, you're going to see this market break ten percent, and you're going to see Treasuries down at two six uh, and uh, two five, and they're just they won't they'll they'll pause there. So uh, uh, you know that uh, outside of that, if there is no trade war, if there's a delay, even if there's no resolution, as it stands now, I think they go uh, in September. Um, I mean, the job the job market is still very, very strong. Um, uh, you know, jobless claims every basically every uh, every indicator tightness in various markets. Uh, you know, is now almost across the board. Um, uh, you know, job openings are greater than in, in the JOLTS data for the first time in many many decades. Greater than the uh, unemployed. I mean. You know, we're not seeing it in wages that much because of compositional questions and certain other questions, but we do we definitely know shortages in the industry. So my feeling is, and that one reason the strength of the dollar, now here's another thing today we should talk about, the dollar breaking out again, and not just against emerging markets, but also against the euro into a new high. I think that's putting pressure on the S&P. Interestingly enough, right now, as I'm looking at my screen, Russell 2000, which of course is mostly domestic Stocks is actually up a uh, quarter percent, so it's running contrary to trend. But obviously, a strong dollar is headwinds for the S and P 500 for the big cap stocks. And um, you know, I think you know where the dollar is is, is uh, you know it's certainly something else that the traders are going to be watching. It's amazing how fast it can move. It was the euro was like this one way street higher all of last year. Now it's uh, it's sort of breaking the 115 and it moves quickly to sort of below 114. So it's, it's interesting yeah, what's going below, on there. right now below. Below one fourteen, take your take your vacation to Europe now, guys. Um, <laughs> so perf- you'll get some good bargains, Professor. Um, you- yeah, and again, I think I mean everything really is 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 going to be trade. I think um, you know moving forward, and you know how far uh, you know uh, he's uh, you know how close he's going to play, 
and um, uh, I wish I had a, a pipeline into the Oval Office that gave me a clue. Uh, but um, all I've I, all I've been saying is he does tout the stock market. The stock market does absolutely does not want any big trade war. So. You know, it's a question of whether, you know, how he's going to weigh all these uh, different effects. And also, by the way, I mean, you know, we have the midterm elections coming in three months, a trade war even, you know, I mean, that's that's going to be a big issue. I mean, if the stock market drops 10, 15 percent on a trade war, um, you know, that that I think is not going to be good uh, for the Republicans who given the special elections, are going to have a big trouble holding the House. I don't think they're going to hold the House. Actually, odds makers have now even pushed a little bit more to almost two to one that the Democrats are going to take uh, the House, although the Republicans hold the Senate. But um, those odds have not uh, gone to the GOP over the last uh, 30 days. Professor, thanks for joining us for some commentary here to start the show. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend. We... uh for the rest of the show, we're going to have here now starting Matthew McAleer of Cumberland Advisors, Andy Stewart of Exchange Capital Management. Uh, Andy's the Chief Investment Officer for Exchange Capital, a uh, fee-only financial planning firm in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, in, in Cumberland, uh, down in, in Florida. Matt, is that where you down calling in from, from Sarasota? Yep, calling right off the trading desk here in Sarasota. Very good. Executive Vice President, Director of Equity Strategies at Cumberland. You guys do a lot of ETF rotation-type models, but also a big emphasis on muni bonds uh, in your group. A uh, number of your, your team was up in, in Maine for the annual Camp Kotak. Um, I'm curious, as you guys are discussing you know, all the sort of economists getting together, discussing what you guys talked about there or what we talked about, any, any uh, high-level summaries of, of, of big picture worldviews from, from the from the weekend and then also just how you guys are thinking about the markets today? Well, you know, that you, you get quite a group of uh, economists up up in uh, up in Maine, which means I try to stay away. <laughs> <laughs> Two markets are uh, You know, uh, but but I you know, David was reporting down here on, on some of the some of the different thoughts and, and, and group think happening on both sides bullish, bearish, uh, you know, fixed income thoughts, equity thoughts, uh, you know, that's, that's a little more big picture than what we're, the confab is than what we're trying to do week to week here, which is just, you know, attempting to control risk and, and, and provide reasonable entries, uh, you know, in terms of risk and reward. Uh, you know, it, it, it's the continuing headache and Dr. Siegel touched on it, uh, continues to be, uh, you know, international markets. U.S. is the beacon right now, uh, making new highs again this week. Well, the S&P is within a, you know, a breadth of it. But if you look at, uh, you know, the Qs, the NASDAQ, you look at some of the micro cap, uh, you look at small cap, mid cap, they took a little breath two and three weeks ago, but have traded back nicely. Uh, what, what worries me uh, primarily is do we finally kind of succumb to the the weakness we're seeing in in the other 30 markets around the world you really can't find a strong bid australia trades okay uh you know here and there you have a a a, a decent week or, or or 10 days out of some areas but you know since january february really since the the trade talk started to heat up these these foreign markets uh, have just continued to make lower lows, and uh, most of their little 
you know, five, 10-day rallies have been sold. So we've traded back now, both in the emerging markets and the developed markets, back to just above those lows of, what, four, five weeks ago. And, you know, it's a positive if we can stick in here. I, I, I just worry how long can the U.S. market stand by itself with mm. the, the continued weakness around the world, markets-wise, you know, trying not to focus strictly on trade and GDP and this and that, just on supply and demand. Uh, not not too many solid opportunities overseas right now. When I when I talk to Dave, it seems, uh, and so David Kotak being your sort of former um, CEO, I guess now you got uh, John Mousseau taking over CEO, but he sort of expressed a position of being a little bit more defensive and cautious than normal. That you guys have been raising cash. Uh, would you say that's true of your equity strategies? And and sort of maybe talk through what signals are getting you to being more defensive. Sure. Uh, you know, internationally, we have a little slug of cash. On, on days like this, we never have enough cash, uh, you know, and that's just how it works. Uh, we, we've been trying to find some areas for opportunity internationally for some of that cash. As I mentioned, we've been nosing around Australia. We, we are long Australia and, and may add in there if it can, if it can hold in here at a decent, decent level. Uh, Canada, Canada trades well. You know, that people don't think of Canada right off the bat in an international portfolio, but they've, they've pulled back off their highs of May, and with energy having a decent bid, you know, Canada's so reliant on banks and energy that that may be a, a position for us. You know, domestically, we've raised, we've raised some cash. We're sitting today at 17% in the U.S. ETF portfolio. Uh, we, we handle most of our uh, you know, equity positioning through ETFs, and we may be a little bit early there. Uh, we've, we've done two things. We've, over the last six months, we've shifted uh, away from multinational type of investments into more of the domestic U.S. So uh, as, as was noted earlier, you know, the small cap index is actually up today. So we, we're about 35% small cap right now, which uh, historically against a benchmark is a, a pretty good slug. And we're trying to insulate ourselves against, uh, you know, some of this, some of this trade, trade war, if you want to call it that, uh, headline risk week to week, month to month, uh, because I don't think anyone, including the president, really knows, uh, you know, how that's going to work out. And I don't know if there's a solid plan in play in the White House to begin with. I think it may be a take it as it comes, see what the reactions are, and, and, and more a, let's see how the markets are taking it. I, I would think that uh, the strong bid in the U.S. does give uh, President Trump a little bit of ammunition. Whether you like the trade war talk or not, the fact that uh, China's down almost 20% off its high and the U.S. is flirting with highs, the markets decided who is more at risk from the trade war uh, currently. So, you know, when uh, I'm, I'm sure when the president looks at that, 
it gives him a little more ammunition, whether it's whether it's right or not. We'll find out. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, the small caps have definitely outperformed this year, maybe about three percent or more over the S and P. And certainly in the second quarter, when you had the very strong dollar, dollars up over five percent in the second quarter, you saw small caps outperform. Do you think, you know, as you think about that international segment in China? being hit from the, these, these this rhetoric, do you think that that's becoming a, a place you're going to look for overselling, that people are overly pessimistic on, you know, this this China trade deal happening? In, in sort of conversations at sort of Camp Kotak, they definitely, there was a, definitely a discussion on China, and there was you know, some of the experts there did think that you're going to have bluster over the next, uh, you know, three weeks before the midterms, but just as we get to the midterms, that they're going to eventually come to the, come to a deal. We'll see. You know, I, 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 I come at it from a, a little bit different, uh, different perspective and just trying to watch the, the trading action, whether that's on momentums or relative strength or, or trend. Yeah. Uh, we haven't seen enough positive to get too excited about China yet. Uh, you know, some of the tougher types of trades are when it's a drip down. And that's really what you're seeing in China and Asia uh, Latin America is this dripping down, not sharp moves that you kind of wipe out the sellers, clear them out, and can buy them. You know, the old, you know, from, from years ago, we used to talk about looking for bids wanted opportunities to get long a market when, when there's not a buyer around and, and you're able to, uh, you know, take out the bulk of the sellers. You're not seeing any of that internationally, which makes it tricky. It's these drip markets that that uh, are tough to clear people out of. Uh, you know, will China come to the table? China probably comes at this uh, a little bit differently, thinking a little longer term. You know, they don't have midterm elections. They don't have regular elections. They they may try to wait us out. I, I made a point to David and John the other day in our meeting, though. You know, people talk about politics affecting the markets, uh, you can really make a case that it's the other way around, that, that the markets affect politics. So with China 18%, 19% off their 52-week high and talking about uh, you know not budging for now and, and, and thinking longer term, that may change down 25%, down 30%. Uh, as we know, when we, when we have large market dislocations here, you see political talk uh, often change on a dime. Uh, you know, uh, tough political talk and rhetoric uh, really changes when your when your your markets are uh, melting down. So it's not a meltdown right now. You know, a twenty percent move in China. You know, we used to see we'd see a twenty percent move in China every other year. So uh, it, it, it's not a meltdown, but I would think at 25, 30 percent down, would they want to have a have a meeting with Trump and, and probably sooner than later? I would think so. Let me, that's, again, that's my opinion. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Matt McAleer, Executive Vice President, Director of Equity Strategies at Cumberland. Uh, also in the studio, Andy Stewart of Exchange Capital Management. Andy, just bringing you into the conversation. Any thoughts on what you heard? So. Uh, Matt's going to cash, 17%. He's got a small cap tilt, underweight, or sort of looking for opportunities, but not much internationally. What's what's your reaction to that? Yeah, um, I, I'm curious, actually. I have a question for you on the, the Canada and, and Australia. Is that around mining and materials? That Are those the actual economies and, and companies there? What kind of play is that in your mind? 
Well, Canada, we would we would we would access that through through the a liquid uh, ETF. Uh, EWC is the is the actual symbol, and if it, that's made up the the top you know seventy five percent of the move in that in that uh, ETF is going to be linked to financials, banks, and energy. So the the reason Canada would be attractive to us would be their banking system being in pretty good shape and energy having recovered nicely off the you know the 2015-16 debacle and and while it's going to have plenty of volatility there's enough demand worldwide that you know the thought on our end is if we have to be an international and we have one, an international strategy uh you know which by mandate is is invested internationally we want to try to find some of these countries that that uh have less downside risk and that's always our first our first uh conversation how much downside risk is there in any trade and canada's in decent shape australia it's really uh you know the the worry there is they do so much uh so much commodity trading with china that if china was to see a slowdown yeah that's which, what I would by the way to. we don't see but if if they were to see through this tariff tariff fight does australia get hit the fact that they have a pay a four and a half percent dividend on the on the index on the uh, australian etf we use is a little bit of a cushion you know we like that 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 kind of gives us a little bit of uh you know anchor to the position so right now internationally we're trying to find out you know where the bad houses are and, and where we can survive to tell you the truth and the other thing that you said that I kind of jump on, I agree with you that markets can move policy um, here in the U.S., especially with this administration. In China, I, I might say that that government might care more about what's happening with the yuan than the than the equity markets. That if the Chinese currency continues to fall, that you know it's kind of fallen off a cliff recently. Uh, yeah, yeah, that sure that worries has. them more, right? Yeah, and I and I and I don't specifically even mean the, the equity market. Sure, that's what that's what we we focus an awful lot on uh, even day to day here in the US but as you said you know the the currency there is is front and center you know and and fixed income markets globally uh, often dictate policy probably more than the equity market so I, I agree with you that uh, for all the talk all the talk about uh, how markets will react to policy and politics i often think it's the opposite you know policy and politics react to markets now, sort of on this currency topic, uh, you know, I know you guys had been a fan, um, without talking to specific tickers, because we're, we're not really supposed to talk specific tickers, but on currency hedging generally um, in the past, and now you got the dollars moving decently higher, the euro's sort of coming off a cliff here. Um, any any thoughts on what you think the dollar's going to do as you go internationally to some of these international markets? Well, you know, it, it, the strength in the dollar uh has surprised me over the last 30 days. I thought it would be more a parity trade with the euro for most of the year. So we haven't really positioned ourselves uh, to try to take advantage of that. We've, we've played a neutral international game, you know, not trying to hedge any currency. Uh, the dollar strength has been, has been, you know, surprising for us. We thought it would be solid, but uh, some of the I don't know if it's the dollar and the thought that uh, the U.S. economy is just bulletproof or if it's, you know, probably more a combination of some of these other 
markets just not being able to to get a bid, whether 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 through their equity market, whether through their GDP, whether through them unable to get rates higher. You know, that's something that we've been talking about for years, but. You know, when you look at what's what's the Germany, what's the German tenure today trading at uh, 60 basis points? You know, bond wise, uh, you know that 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 keeps pressure, that keeps pressure on their currency. Uh, you know, as you see our rates start to tick higher, uh, with the Fed moving rates up, we, we've the, the dollar's been a beneficiary there. Yep. You got to go, you got to go to 15 years to get 60 basis points in Germany. Their 10 years only 30 basis points. Uh, right. to, to at least it's positive. On the ten, at least it's positive. It's Amazing. back above zero. Amazing. You know, people. Not the seven year. The seven years negative. We, we have that conversation on the, uh, on the bond side all the time with with customers, with clients, and 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 folks where they're really concerned about rising rates in the U.S. and and while we have to respect that and we respect the fact that you know the Fed's raising rates and and there is some upward pressure we do come back with the fact that where's money going to go if you're a if you're managing money overseas and you have a mandate of of how much fixed income you need to own where are you going to go uh you've got a you know a 290 10 year in the US 30 basis point 10 year in Germany uh you know you have Italy which borders on a junk rating Probably, you know, without looking, what's their tenure paying? A three ten, three fifteen, three twenty, maybe two ninety eight. Uh, yeah. Two ninety eight. Not enough. So they're the two ninety eight. You're you're a manager of of of, you know, five hundred billion dollars. It well in a, in a wealth fund in a, uh, you know, for for a different uh, for a country for a large, uh, country bucket. Where are you going to put that money? You're going to buy the U.S. You have job risk buying Italy at two ninety eight, don't you? Yeah, I totally agree. If you're an Austrian firm managing a pension, you know, all things being equal, you prefer German debt, sure. But if you can get a solid yield and you accept a little bit of currency risk, you can even hedge the currency risk by sure. U.S. debt, and you're much better off if you're, you know, you're trying to asset liability match against stuff that's decades out. No, no. So we're we're hopeful. Just to finish up on that thought, we're I shouldn't say hopeful. We. Uh, we're positioned that sure we're going to see rates move higher let's say over the next 12 24 or 36 months but we think it'll be gradual and it it's not enough to scare us out from buying say you know three 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 percent uh 10 12 year you know Good quality municipal bonds, you know, and uh, a couple times in here, when when the ten year when the ten year treasury breached three and got to three oh five three ten, we were able to see some some munis double A credit munis twenty five years out, twenty eight years out, sure, but at at four four ten four fifteen, you know that that's a heck of a compounded rate over time on a tax free yield, so. So, so Matt, we've talked a little bit about your your U.S. positioning and sort of being overweight small caps, getting towards uh, a little bit defensive cash. And I know you guys also do some sector rotation, uh, and this can be one of the topics we're going to continue in the second half of the program. But any thoughts on how you're positioned via sectors and that defensive mindset? Is it being expressed through sectors, or is it uh, really just the cash bucket that you're getting more defensive with? No, both ways. Uh the, the way we manage the portfolio is we want 50% of it uh, geared towards 
broad exposure, and that's where we're, you know, small cap, mid cap, and tell you the truth, we have a, a, a micro cap position that we've had on for a few months, and, uh, you know, that that's traded just fine, but uh, not something that's, uh, you know, in the normal vernacular of, of, of our discussions, but uh, really the, the, the relative strength and trend put us in that. So we will position 50% towards those broad uh, index type of bets. The other 50% is is uh, industry and sector related. So we've gotten, a, as as mentioned, a little more defensive. Our largest two sector positions right now are healthcare and financials. Uh, so that they they tend to be a little bit more domestic. Sure, you can see some of the big national banks have some headaches on a day like uh, international banks on a day like today, where you have some some currency headaches overseas. But feel pretty uh, we feel pretty good on on the financials and where they're trading today. They've backed off their highs. They've given us some entry. We get some yield there. We're spread across uh, large banks, regional banks, and uh, small banks. There's, mm. You know, the nice thing about the buckets through ETFs is we can really try to express our thoughts uh, today much more than we could 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yep. I've been trading ETFs since the mid-90s. Uh, you know, it used to be, uh, you know, really plain vanilla back then. Here you can you can really get creative. Any thoughts? I mean, tech's been really leading the, the market higher the last five years, and uh, that's one of the sectors that's going to have some transition. Uh, any any thoughts about what's just happening in the big the big tech uh, you know, we picked that up through through some of our index exposure. We are right now uh, underweight tech, and while uh, while while performance wise we've been doing well, it's been a kind of a thorn in our side for mm. for the last quarter. Uh, S and P weighting on tech is about twenty six percent. We're we're right about eleven percent tech, so that's a significant underweight for us versus the benchmark. Uh, we don't dislike tech, not at all. Uh, those growth rates are wonderful, and, and I'm sure we'll be back in at some point. We just got a little concerned about uh, breaching that 25% of the S&P, which historically becomes uh, rough sledding. When, it, when a sector gets beyond 25% of the S&P, some of the gains have already been wrung out. So far, we're wrong on that. It's uh, what up to 26 or 27% now. So we'll see. It, it peaked at about 32 30% back in 2000. So that's kind of our outlier. Well, very good, Matt. Thank you. We're going to have to wrap up this first segment of the show. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to give us your thoughts on the program. Sure. My pleasure. We've been talking with Matthew McClear, who is the Executive Vice President, Director of Equity Surge at Cumberland Advisors. They just hosted Camp Kotak in, in Maine. It was a great uh, a great group that got to go out there. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation in the second half of the program here with Andy Stewart of Exchange Capital Management. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, powered by the Ward School, Sirius XM 132. Be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. For the, this half hour, we've got Andy Stewart, Chief Investment Strategist for Exchange Capital Management. We're going to be talking about uh, what Exchange Capital Management does, uh, some sector-type ideas that, uh, that Andy's thinking about a lot. But Andy, maybe just start off for us. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you got to Exchange Capital Management. Tell us about... Uh, how you got to be the chief investment strategist there, some of the roles you've had before before you got there. Sure. Uh, I have kind of a strange background for folks in the world of investing. I uh, studied engineering at Case Western down in Cleveland, 
and uh, then moved out to Boston and found myself uh, working at a small uh, school in Boston running their technology department. Um, always interested in the markets, uh, even when I was back in high school, uh, so that was always kind of on the, on the horizon for me. Uh, but decided to actively pursue that and uh, went to Boston College, to get, went to uh, study finance there. Was there in 0809, which is a wonderful time to study the markets. And I'll, I'll give a plug to BC's professors. They were really able to pivot in that market and, and actually talk about current events, which was great. Uh, but obviously a, a rough uh, time to look for work. Yeah. So spent some more time in the nonprofit world. I'm still very much involved in the nonprofit world in my, in my spare time. Uh, but landed at John Hancock after a couple of years in their team that does sub-advisor due diligence uh, and then uh, managed to find a position that moved me back home to the Detroit area at a, a hedge fund of funds, again, doing due diligence work there. How, how's that business going now? Yeah, I mean, hedge funds are, are tough. There's fee compression across the board. Uh, fund of funds are, are under pressure, too. A lot of people, um, institutional folks, more and more want to build their own portfolios of hedge funds when they want the exposure at all. Uh, that whole space is a lot different than it was 20 years ago. Uh, so joined Exchange Capital a year ago, January, so almost two years now. Uh, I lead the investment efforts there. Uh, I think that uh, one of the things that really attracted me to Exchange and, and the work that we do there, we're a, um, you know, we're what we call a an ensemble type firm. So there's lots of overlap in skill sets. Uh, but one of the things that I really enjoy doing is explaining uh, complicated things to to people who are laymen, um, mm -hmm. and, and that's something I've been good at in various parts of my career, whether it was uh, technology to teachers at the school um, or talking about the markets to our clients. I really enjoy that. I'm pretty good at it. Uh, so that's one of the one of the things that I think really attracted me to exchange. They were looking for somebody to fill that role. Uh, but again, we're an ensemble firm. We have a really strong investment committee. Uh, we talk about all these issues across the team. And, and they were founded by, you were telling me the story that there was an equity guy and a bond guy and yep. they came together. And so how is that manifested in your firm's philosophy approach to investing and building portfolios for clients? Sure. So yeah, Kevin was kind of our, our equity guy. Mike was more of our fixed income guy, both CFA charter holders like me. Um, could do my job uh, and did do my job uh, back in the day when when the firm was younger. Uh, because of their background, uh, a lot of our assets are invested in individual stocks and bonds, uh, both corporate bonds, treasuries, munis, uh, like your pre previous guest mentioned. Uh, a lot, most of our assets are in individual stocks and bonds. We do use ETFs as needed to plug holes where it doesn't make sense to to use individual stocks. Small cap is a good example. Um, a particular small sector that you just want a small small amount allocated to, and you don't have a strong opinion on one company versus another, makes sense to use an inexpensive ETF to kind of fill that hole. And so, when you think about where you guys, what, what's interesting, you know, I often hear. A narrative that uh, the large caps are the most efficient asset class. That's where we're going to use ETFs, and then, you know, these inefficient markets where, you know, you things like small caps, international emerging markets. That's where we must use active managers to try to out outperform. You guys sort of flip that on its head. Maybe sort of talk about your investment beliefs, where you're picking stocks and then use ETFs for, for these other baskets. Sure. So I think the the first kind of attack on that is how we interact with markets is really important. Uh, Buying and selling stocks efficiently and ETFs efficiently makes a lot of sense. You know, sure, you can get an ETF that tracks the S&P 500 and it charges you three basis points. But if your plan is to go invest a million dollars in large cap equity and it's in a taxable account and you're going to hold it for years, um, 
why spend three basis points a year on on an ETF when you can just buy Apple for five dollars and uh, and hold it for a long time? It's free to hold at that point. Um, so there's the kind of cost effectiveness trading aspect of it. Uh, also, although now Fidelity's at zero. Well, yeah, in their in their mutual like one or two of their mutual funds, yeah. is that right? Yeah, right. So right, I mean as. People keep driving fees down. You know, you have to be willing to kind of think about maybe that changes for yeah. some clients in some situations. Yeah. Um. So, but to talk about the portfolio brand process, picking the individual stocks. Any themes that you guys are representing? You pick portfolios of 30, 40 stocks. How do you think about building the portfolio of the individual stocks? Yeah. So we look for names that. Um, well, you're right. The joke is everybody always says they're looking for high quality companies at a low price, right? As if there are people out there looking for. Uh, Expensive garbage. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, right. We're looking for high quality companies at a low price. Um, we look for companies that uh, that have high barriers to entry that can protect uh, their pricing as inflation moves through the market. Um, as their costs go up, they can they can raise their own costs. So, you know, very high barriers to entry. Uh, sort of businesses. Um, right now, a theme that you'll kind of see in, across our portfolio in in many sectors of it uh, involve. Um, companies that are kind of building on the Netflix of blank. The uh, Uber of, the Netflix yeah, of. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Subscription-based so. uh, ideas. So Microsoft has been very successful in that, right? It used to be that uh, they were constantly trying to convince Fortune 500 companies, uh, you know, it's time to buy Office 97, and it's going to cost you $400 per employee, and, and, you know, General Motors is going to kick that can as far down the road as they possibly can until finally they just have to do it and, and pay the upgrade fees. Microsoft realized that that led to a lot of difficulties in planning cash flow and, and R&D and successfully moved to this Office 365 environment, uh, again, the Netflix of where instead of uh, people having to buy Office every now and then, you're just kind of constantly buying Office and it feels like it's cheap from the General Motors or other Fortune 500 companies' perspective. Really, it's just easy to plan for. And on the flip side, the same thing is true for Microsoft. Uh, there are other companies that you can think of that do that more and more firms are realizing that they really should focus their capital allocation inside their firm on their core business and outsource the stuff that isn't their core business. Uh, again, Microsoft is a good example. Um, Viva Systems is a company that uh, provides software to um, to the healthcare R&D space, right? If you're a biotech company, you want to focus on doing research on the drugs that you that you have patents for, not uh, maintaining your customer relationship database and, and the software that you use to make sure you got all your T's and I's, T's crossed and I's dotted with the regulator. Yep. You outsource that stuff. We do that at our firm. We use, we outsource our, you know, trading functions. We outsource, um, you know, we custody with, with external firms. Um, you have external IT firms to help you do all that sort of support. It makes sense. We want to allocate our internal capital on having talent that's focused on growing the business and outsource um, everything else. So companies that are in the business of providing that outsource tool, we think are in a really good position, especially if there are high switching costs and it's subscription-based. That's a pretty regularly achievable business model. So, so you're picking these large-cap stocks, and then you use the baskets for, for small caps for international. Is that an appropriate uh, characterization? Yeah, and again, um, small sectors, you, you know, REITs where you just you want one or two percent allocated, um, or it, you know even a bigger sector where you don't necessarily have a strong opinion at the moment, um, like energy. Uh, you know I don't have a strong opinion on ExxonMobil versus BP versus Shell today. I might in the future, but for now, uh, it's you know it's really easy to use a sector ETF to put three percent of the portfolio to work in that sector and get exposure. 
Now, there's, there's, uh, I know you and I have talked offline. So there's some changes happening in, in sector ETFs, and uh, maybe sort of walk through. You know, you think this is a really big deal. The the media is not focused on it enough, um, and we wanted to bring some attention to that here. So maybe sort of talk through. What, what's happening? Why you think it's a big deal for a lot of the ETFs and for the markets generally? Sure. So uh, as my colleagues often tease me, I get into the weeds too often. Uh, most of our of our time at Exchange is focused on you know providing good financial planning to our clients and kind of avoiding behavioral finance traps and that kind of stuff. But I stumbled upon this issue uh, right around the new year that um, – the powers that be in the sector classification system are moving things around. And as your previous guest mentioned, um, you know, IT is getting to be 25, 26% of the market. Uh, there are 11 sectors out there, and the classification folks in the ivory tower have decided that 25, 26% is too much. And also, there are some companies that are currently IT companies that maybe aren't really so much technology companies anymore. Uh, and let's kind of cut the legs out from underneath tech and reclassify them as communications. Uh, currently, telecommunications is a sector in the S&P 500. It has three companies in it, AT&T, Verizon, and CenturyLink. It's the smallest of the 11 sectors. Uh, they are taking companies like Google and, um, and Facebook out of technology and putting them into communications. They're also taking companies like um, out of consumer discretionary, such as Comcast and Disney, they're getting pulled out of there and going into communications. Media. Yeah. So that makes sense in some ways, right? You can kind of see that Google is more and more an ad-driven business, and they're also in the content production business now with YouTube. Uh, Facebook is certainly revenues are ad-driven. There's a little bit of content there. Disney and Comcast, certainly. You know, Comcast, of course. Verizon, AT&T, Comcast. They're shaping all our attention spans. They all are these media, big media. Yeah, absolutely. Um, academically, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Um, but there are these knock-on effects kind of downstream in terms of sector classifications affect index classifications, affect ETFs and mutual funds that track those indices, and then affects individual portfolios for clients of ours. That Because some of our clients do have um, sector ETF portfolios mm -hmm. rather than individual stocks. We're talking with Andy Stewart, who is the Chief Investment Strategist for Exchange Capital Management, about his views on sort of the sector reclassification. So do you have a, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about some of your positioning within the portfolio. So are you using some of these different tech sector ETFs, worried about these reclassifications as they're kicking out? Uh, sort of talk about the problem of, of the assets in the tech sector versus when they kick them out. What's going to happen? Sure. Right. So you look at one of our portfolios that is individual stocks. We own Alphabet or Google, right? It's an academic exercise for me to you know, cross it off in the technology bucket and write it right. in in the communications bucket. Doesn't that's, matter. That's a non-issue. But for, a say, a smaller account that we have uh, where it's not big enough to be diversified in individual stocks, we sometimes do use sector ETFs. Uh, we sometimes have clients who specifically ask for an ETF model. Happy to do that for them. But now imagine a, a taxable account that owns... 20 to 25% of this IT ETF, and that IT ETF will no longer have Google in it. I need to go sell some of that IT ETF and buy the communications ETF instead if I want to maintain a representative amount of the Google exposure. If that's in a taxable account, that's a taxable event for my client. That otherwise wouldn't have happened. So that's kind of problem one. Um, take a step up into the markets. There's the issue of you have tens of billions of dollars invested in ETFs and mutual funds that are passively managed that track these indexes. And we, the date is set in the future, I believe it's late September, that they will sell 
a whole bunch of Facebook and Google, and there is not this, uh, a corresponding amount of assets in the communications funds to be the buyer of all those assets. So there's potentially downward pressure on these tech and consumer, consumer discretionary names. Um, we'll see how the market actually handles it. You know, again, you mentioned earlier, and I totally agree that there's not a lot of media coverage. I, I kind of I think about, like, imagine if, if we had heard in advance that a third point or a Pershing Square were going to sell a billion dollars of something, and they announced to the market three months in advance, you know, hey, on this date in the future, we're going to sell one and a half billion dollars worth of XYZ company. I, I think we'd be seeing the, the headlines on CNBC right now. No, it's interesting. Um, you know, we, we met at a conference. You mentioned that to me. I said, that is an interesting an interesting story that isn't getting enough coverage. Let's have you on the show talk about it. And, uh, you know, so if you think about what's happening here to date, you've definitely seen between those two, um, you're actually still seeing, you know, for one of them is outperforming. Google's doing much better than the market this year. You've got Facebook who had its problems, other mm-hmm. sets of problems. It reported earnings is actually a very big slide, earnings related versus uh, versus this ETF selling related. But it's, it, it is interesting that you would say it's not been really reflected yet. Uh, we still have another two months before it all transpires, but it's, it's sort of an interesting story. Yeah, right. I mean, certainly the real economics of the individual firms matters more than this. But this is a non-zero effect. Yeah. How how extensive it is is unknown, but it, it, it's non-zero. Yeah, it's, it's hard to know how much selling you think is going to come in and how much selling relative to its market cap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have an estimate on the total size? I mean, we look at some of the tech sector ETFs. We were pulling it up, maybe $20 billion in one of the largest largest ones. Uh, I don't know how many other ones are being impacted beyond that. Yeah, it's hard to say. And also, you know, whether this will actually affect any of the actively managed money is, is hard to say. Probably not. I kind of feel like the new telecommun- the new communication sector is going to become kind of like tech's little brother. Yeah. That for, for people who are focused on um, technology and media, the, the TMTs of the world, um, they'll just focus on those two sectors and then they'll be okay with it. Again, you know, yeah. it's just writing, crossing out one place, putting it in another. Um, it's more the passive ETF one that has yeah. to follow the index and then has to create these separates. And by by estimate um, of the funds that I could kind of find that are passive that own these things, you know, they it's not like they own ten percent of Facebook all in, right? They they're owning maybe less than one percent, maybe up to two percent, somewhere in that realm. You, you know, can one percent of Facebook get sold without too much trouble, especially if they're doing it in an efficient way and willing to kind of do it over some time. Yeah, maybe. Um, but again, I, I feel like we should shine lights on parts of these markets to kind of make sure that we are more likely to, to mm. kind of churn through this in a clean way. Uh, the other thing that, I, that I'd like to point out is that, again, I'm, I'm very much worried about the individual investor on this one. How many people out there bought telecommunications 18 months ago for particular reasons, maybe dividend yield? Right, the the telecommunications space has a relatively high dividend yield compared to the rest, rest of the S and P, and if they aren't paying attention to this by December of this year, their dividend yield I think is going to get cut in half or something like that because all these companies that are going into these existing communications ETFs don't have the same kind of dividend yields that Verizon and, and AT and T have. Now they created some new ones for this. Is that is that? One of the one of the companies out there, the Sector Spiders, they created a new one. But um, Vanguard, the big player out there, is just changing their existing fund. Uh, so the the qualities of that ETF are changing in some really significant ways because of all these changes. Very interesting. Yeah. So what so what do you guys ultimately do in the end? So are you thinking about uh, repositioning anyway? Or you, you 
Yeah. So it, right in non-taxable accounts where it's a lot easier, then um, we just got to pay attention to how the different fund companies are moving, whether they're doing it all at once or if they're doing it over a period of time. And then, again, think about trading costs and make some, some kind of changes over the next uh, couple of months. We kind of already have been thinking about that for the past few months that you don't want to you know, a new account comes in, you don't want to just put it right into one set of allocations when you know that a couple months from now things are going to be different. Uh, in taxable accounts, it's a lot tougher. And, um, you know, we've been talking to clients about it that who we know are kind of tax sensitive and, and, and writing about it on our blog to kind of raise awareness about it. And then we try to trade in as tax efficient way as, as, as possible and, and kind of work around it. But in the end, if you want to maintain the overall exposures that you want to these different areas, you have to make some sort of change and do it as well as you can. So um, maybe sort of taking a step back beyond just this sort of sector, this, this story, um, for exchange capital management, who are the, the types of clients in Michigan you're serving? Who are the types of people that uh, you're, you know, you're trying to, to, to approach with your, uh, your firm's approach? Sure. The, our typical clients um, have already made their, made their money one way or another uh, and come to us to preserve, protect, and earn them a fair rate of return. Um, we found that the two reasons that often dominate the decision to hire us are uh, the client wants affirmation. They want to partner with a professional to be sure that they're doing things right and also go through the financial planning process, which a good number, number of our staff is focused very much on the financial planning as opposed to my end of the office that's more on the trading and, and investing side. Uh, and then delegation is the other reason, right? People want to buy their time back. It, it, they want to have more free time to do the things that they enjoy. A lot of our clients are smart enough that they could do investing on their own. Sometimes they have in the past. Uh, but at some point they realize that, you know, they hire somebody to help clean their house and mow their lawn, and they can buy some of their time back by hiring us too. And should you, would any any sense of, we talked a little bit about the trends in asset management going to sort of zero fee. You see a lot on the asset, on the advisor side, you see a lot going to the digital, the robo-type uh, firms. Any commentary on how you think they you're, you stack up? How people do you come across the robos and what you do? Yeah, uh, I don't think we've we come across the you know come up head to head against a robo advisor very often. I, when I think about technology and people, I don't think it's an either or conversation. It's an and both conversation. Um, the firms that are, are are like us, but thirty years ago and have not kept up with the technological times and still do everything paper. And if you want to know about your portfolio, you have to make a phone call. I think that that is a tough space to be in. Um, we have a, a really strong technology platform. We have a you know portal that our client can log into anytime they want that answers the vast majority of their questions that they have. Um, obviously, they, they do sometimes pick up the phone and call us. But again, they're hiring us to save themselves time. They don't want to spend time calling us if they don't have to, I've, I've noticed. Um, so really, yeah, it's and both. You need to have that technology. But people also want to know who's who they're trusting their money with. You know, you've spent a lifetime building up a a retirement savings, um, just putting it into the cloud and, and, and not knowing who who's kind of helping you with that, I think, is a hurdle for, for a lot of people. And we provide them with a, a face of an advisor yep. who's kind of the quarterback and, and access to me if they need it built, you know, built around a really strong technological platform that shows them exactly where their money is and what's happening on a day-to-day basis. Any anecdotes from the Michigan economy, your clients, what they're saying, what they're feeling, How's business? Uh, I'm really happy that Michigan is diversifying its uh, its income stream. We're not we're not just an automotive uh, state anymore. Yeah. I think you know that that's good for any economy to be more diversified. Um, I grew up uh, just north of Michigan, and I, and I live there now. Uh, you know, I think that 
the the future has never been brighter for for Detroit, at least in my lifetime. Um, things are things are kind of looking up, and um, we're on the right track. So they're repositioning the downtown. There's a lot of incentives to go in. And so who, is, who are the type of companies? Is it tech companies? Is that what this, So there's some tech companies going. You know, everybody talks about Dan Gilbert, um, yep. Quicken Loans, and all the property he's buying up. But, uh, you know, I have um, a friend from high school who is very successfully running a women's boutique clothing stores in Midtown, Michigan. And she's doing great. You know, I think that the, the small company economy should not be ignored. Um, there's all sorts of things happening. It's not just the stuff at the top. It, it, it's kind of all up and down the spectrum and, and things seem to be doing pretty well. So as we're wrapping up our final two minute, two minute countdown here. Uh, as you think about how you got to where you are, both as sort of chief investment strategist, any, any suggestions, lessons you learned to sort of get to the place you are in life, how you sort of found it and uh, just any, any sort of wrap up uh, type type remarks you want to make? Yeah, thanks. I evangelize about networking whenever I possibly can. Um, you know, people, it, it's not uncommon, and I've heard it in some of your guests uh, that I've been listening to over the past couple weeks in your podcast. Um, people talk about how, you know, I got to where I am with a lot of hard work, but also they can identify these two or three times where they just got lucky and, and something just kind of happened at the right time and they, they bumped into the right person or had the right opportunity. And um, I would argue that it, it's not so much luck as serendipity, and you can build serendipity. You can set yourself up to have a higher chance of those lucky things happening to you, and I think a lot of that happens around networking, that um, people uh, across their careers should be spending a portion of their time just getting out there and talking to people and hearing their stories and telling your story. And um, so my advice to people kind of earlier on in their career is get out there and have those conversations, ask to have those conversations. And then for those of us who have, you know, quote, unquote, made it, it's our responsibility to say yes when somebody asks. Mm. And um, if you see somebody who, you know, is in a need to kind of have more contacts in their life, take them out to lunch and tell them your story and hear their story. I, that's one of the reasons I love this show. I get to meet smart people like you. and. You go. Uh, uh, hopefully that's a big part of my uh, my network every week. Get to bring in some smart people to the studio and, and get to talk with them. Thank Absolutely. you so much for coming from Michigan to to be here with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. Uh, we've had two great conversations, two guests who have used some of the wisdom tree chefs in the past. Um, you can also listen to our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.